Welcome to the Decode 6 podcast, where we take your questions about carbon and ecosystem services and match them to the experts with the answers. I'm your host, DJ May. And today we're tackling a fun exploratory question. Which emerging technologies could play a role in carbon and ecosystem services markets? Taking on this question is my guest, Nate Salpeter, general partner at Snowcap and co-founder of Sweet Farm. Nate is a person of many talents. He holds a doctorate in mechanical engineering with expertise in heat transfer, fluid flow, and simulation. And he stays super up to date on new tech for his role as a consultant in the food, biotech, and ag tech sectors. So welcome, Nate. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm excited you're here. Uh, We can jump right in. So give me the highlights on which emerging technologies could play a role in carbon and ecosystem services markets. Yeah, so this is a uh, a big big question, uh, obviously, right? And what I see when I say big question, I mean uh, there are a lot of different angles uh, which you can take this when it comes to uh, carbon. Uh, is, are we talking about carbon markets? Are we talking about carbon trading? Are we talking about carbon sequestration? Um, so, it, pretty pretty broad. Um, I'll. I'll kind of dive in just with a couple of examples of companies that we work with uh, that kind of hit on a couple of different points uh, there. So uh, one is a topic that is probably not uh, uh, foreign to a lot of the listeners on this podcast. Uh, We're talking about biochars. Uh, There's a company called Bioforce Tech, uh, actually, that is based uh, originally in uh, Italy and the San Francisco Bay Area. Uh, they have a unique technology that is actually uh, producing biochars from high moisture content feedstock. So why is this important? Uh, well, oftentimes biochars are produced uh, using already relatively dry uh, feedstock. So we're talking about uh, everything from hemp stalks to wood chips uh, from uh, forestry projects. Uh, but uh, there, there is this uh, uh, need for being able to address high moisture content feedstocks. Uh, so what is biochar for anyone who is not familiar with that? Well, biochar is a essentially a, a, a carbon structure, uh, not too dissimilar from charcoal, uh, but is produced uh, by burning uh, this feedstock at high temperatures with low to no oxygen. Um, so the resulting product, uh, you can think of it almost as uh, a very porous carbon structure, uh, that uh, can be used uh, actually in agriculture for doing things like boosting water retention in soils or uh, retention and release of nutrients, uh, and and also potentially as a surrogate for uh, some other less sustainable options such as uh, vermiculite or perlite. Uh, right, uh, vermiculite. Of course, you have to mine it. You then have to uh, exfoliate it using a very high uh, energy intensive process. Um, all of those things expand the carbon footprint, um, but uh, you have this uh, opportunity with uh, biochars. If done uh, in a certain way, uh, you can actually do it in a carbon negative process. So BioForce Tech in particular, uh, they actually are taking high moisture content feedstock from the wastewater treatment uh, 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 facilities. Uh, so this has already been processed. Think of it uh, like a um, a sludge that normally would get dried down, uh, compacted, thrown into uh, landfills, or uh, in some places uh, could be used on certain types of uh, crops. Uh, but uh, uh, what BioForce Tech does is they actually take it 
and uh, they use their bio dryers. Uh, so they utilize the process heat that is generated uh, from natural microbes, as well as the process heat from their self-sustaining uh, pyrolysis or burning process uh, to continue drying it down. Uh, in that way, they can create this uh, self-sustaining biochar production that the end result is this uh, uh, beneficial co-product. So they get paid to take the material, they get paid on the back end uh, to sell the biochar into different marketplaces, uh, and agriculture is one of those. So uh, there's obviously different uh, considerations you have to uh, think through. Um uh, when when applying biochars, I'm not a biochar expert. I do have about four years of experience doing biochar uh, field trials at very very small scale out at Sweet Farm. Uh, but um, uh, keeping an eye on these kind of um, uh, technologies on where where do we have a, a mutual benefit on both ends? Uh, you know, cr basically cleaning up the environment. Right, these kind of technologies can. Um, remove forever chemicals, whether it's polyfluoral alkyls and um, uh, pharmaceuticals from the waste stream, uh, but then create something that can uh, help address uh, real challenges in the agriculture space, um, such as, uh, you know, we're dealing with drought across much of the country. Um, how can we increase that uh, retention? How can we utilize uh, these, these kind of products to uh, clean up uh, edge of field, uh, use use them perhaps in edge of field uh, approaches to, uh, 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 you know, basically reabsorb uh, nutrients. Or uh, if you're direct applying them into your field, maybe you're pre using it as a pre-filtration uh, on your water system to uh, absorb nutrients from, uh, from your pond uh, while reducing uh, sediment uh, as it's heading out to... Uh, uh, to be uh, watered out in different blocks, and then you can directly apply it uh, out in the field. These kind of combined technologies are really, I think, unique uh, because they solve a lot of problems simultaneously. Um, they're not perfect. We're still learning. Um, it is biochars at large are not necessarily new on their own. Of course, they've been tied to uh, the terra preta soils in, in Brazil, right? These are very uh, old and established uh, utilizations, but uh, applying it to uh, more to more uh, modern process, modern technologies is kind of interesting uh, as well. Yeah. So that's what I'm super excited about, obviously. Uh, yeah. Well, you're making me think here. So there's something else wet and sludgy that I know we deal with a lot in agriculture, but could something like this drying technology be used for manure? Are there like cross applicable? I know you're yeah. not necessarily bringing it, but... Yeah, yeah. So um, I, I think where where it becomes really interesting is um, when you when you look at um, some of the other areas where there's a, a high moisture content uh, feedstock. Uh, there is just one that immediately comes to mind is actually the the wine industry. Uh, so of course, uh, Sweet Farm was originally founded in California, big wine country there. Uh, and we've since moved to upstate New York in the Finger Lakes region, uh, where there's a lot of wine production there. In uh, wine, there is a, um, in the production process, there is a uh, end product uh, known as wine lees. So this is like the sludge at the bottom of, of uh, uh, the uh, fermentation tank. Uh, again, not a winemaker, but uh, it is my understanding that 
these are products that uh, you have to actually uh, pay people to take. It's not a beneficial co-product. It's not something you can sell uh, to people in that in that form. Uh, and you can't just dump it, uh, right? It has like uh, microbes and yeast and things that, um, you know, folks don't want just released into the environment. So uh, you could uh, link a, a process like this that can take these 80% moisture content feedstocks and actually uh, turn them down into a uh, co-product that could be reutilized out in the same field uh, that produced uh, the wines, wine and grapes in the first place. So absolutely, um, this is not just uh, necessarily applied to uh, applied to uh, wastewater treatment. It could be applied to a lot of different areas in agriculture and beyond. Oh, excellent! Well, that's really exciting. Yeah, yeah, it's it's super neat work that they've done, and they've been expanding um, out uh, considerably uh, with different municipalities. Uh, so, was, Sweet Farm did four years of field trials uh, with them, uh, testing them out. There's a lot of considerations that goes into uh, utilization of these kind of things, uh, and it's everything from not not applying them directly uh, without you, you need to apply them uh, with uh, nutrients already impregnated into into those biochars. You don't want to leach the nutrients from the soil back into those. Uh, you also don't want to apply biochars uh, when they're dry. Um, and that's uh, because uh, there's actually uh, research in 2019, I think it was uh, I think it was 2019 there was a study that came out uh, talking about uh, worms and biochars and how uh, uh, in order to uh, reduce, uh, the adverse impacts on worm populations within fields, uh, you should uh, pre-soak uh, the biochars as well. So little things like that. Um, we're constantly learning. I think everyone is. Um, uh, so, um, you know, it's, it's a, it's a fun space to be operating in, uh, especially as it, as it pertains to uh, carbon, because if, if you have a self-sustaining process and you're putting that carbon back in the soil, um, it is one piece of of kind of uh, you know the carbon uh, uh, carbon cycle, if you will. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's always interesting. The thing too, just something as simple as you know hydrating it a little bit before you put it down makes a big difference for that you know mm-hmm. whole ecosystem you have going on in the soil. Absolutely, absolutely. I, I think when you when you hear some of these things and you read a scientific article. Uh, oftentimes it's uh, it can get read as well. Of course, of course you need to do that. But uh, we're we're super happy that there are amazing scientists and researchers out there in the world uh, doing this work to confirm that uh, these things are in fact uh, these hunches uh, are correct, or they're identifying things that people didn't think about before. Um, so, so to everyone listening who falls in that category, a huge thank you uh, for the work that you're doing. Yes, definitely. Well, let's move on. I know you have a couple other topics you want to hit. What's next? Yeah. So uh, one of the when when we talk about um, sort of uh, full um, full cycle, you know, emissions and carbon on that front, um, it it can take a couple of different forms. Uh, another company that Sweet Farm did a couple of years of field trials with, we actually did their very first two years of field trials, is a company called Interplant. And uh, they are doing something really unique. Uh, they're actually teaching plants how to talk to farmers. 
Uh, of course, they don't have tiny little mouths or anything like that. Um, instead, uh, they are essentially uh, linking stress responses um, to uh, um, uh, protein generations that have a fluorescent signal. Uh, of course, this is uh, uh, invisible to human eyes. It's a very distinct uh, 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 emission, and they can tie it to things like pest stress or water stress. Uh, they just recently did a, a, a field trial uh, within a greenhouse, and uh, they actually uh, were testing out drought uh, drought response. So they would cut water uh, from uh, from the crops within about three days. Uh, they could actually see the signals uh, from uh, from the plant saying, "Hey, we're uh, you know we're water stressed," uh, but uh, you could not see it visibly uh, with your own eyes. It took about three or four more days before you could actually notice, "Hey, there's real water stress for these uh, uh, for these plants," and you start to see visible wilting and things like that. Um, so uh, by day nine, plants are dead, right? So how does this relate to carbon? Of course. Um, uh, it's everything from plant waste uh, in the in the uh, field to uh, if you're talking about stresses from things like um, uh, nutrient stress or pest stress or fungal stress. Uh, we're talking about being able to knock out problems at their source, knocking them out uh, efficiently and early, uh, as opposed to waiting up to two weeks to actually get visible signs of issues. And by that time, it either might be too late, in which case huge carbon footprint of that kind, that level of loss, uh, or you're having to actually go out into uh, into the field and spray thousands and thousands of acres um, to try and contain and and address um, uh, what could have been done uh, very early on. So uh, those kind of technologies, I think, are super interesting for a number of reasons. One, uh, it's moving the broader agriculture market uh, forward, right? 95% of the world feeds themselves using really uh, tried and true, you know, kind of traditional agriculture uh, practices, large scale uh, farming agriculture practices. Uh, if we can help anything we can do to help those large scale practices uh, evolve forward in a positive way, right? Reduce inputs, uh, that's less expensive for the individual farmer themselves. It's better for the communities, better for the environments. Uh, those uh, those are things that uh, we are very excited to uh, support. And, uh, and of course, uh, with with that, uh, we we you know kind of make those positive impacts uh, when it comes to uh, uh, emissions and ecosystems uh, at large. So uh, Shelly Aronov, uh, the the founder of Interplant, incredibly talented, incredibly smart uh, uh, CEO of Interplant. Um, has been uh, just a, a pleasure to work with uh, out at Sweet Farm, uh, as have the entire uh, team. Um, she has a very uh, a strong vision in terms of you know how how something like their technology can improve the lives of individual farmers as well as uh, the communities and people that they are feeding. Yeah, well, I want to back it up just a little bit because I immediately pictured like you know, the images you see of like what an insect sees when they go through a field where it's like a different mm -hmm. color spectrum. But how yep. are you visualizing like what's happening with the plant before you visibly see it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, um, so individual, so a, a specific plant, everything has a, um, 
a backscatter, a, a visual or a visible uh, light spectrum. It's not just an individual uh, a wavelength of light, right? So uh, a plant, for instance, it may look green, but there is actually a whole spectrum. Uh, it's a combination of greens and blues and magentas and uh, yellows and all at all different uh, uh, intensities uh, within them. Those uh, those have a very distinct uh, fingerprint to them, right? So if you can actually tie a response to a slightly higher uh, peak on uh, one particular wavelength, for instance, uh, then if uh, if there is that protein response, then all of a sudden you use like a, uh, a low pass filter, uh, you know, a band pass filter uh, on on a camera, and you can see that one little spike actually uh, have a higher intensity. So all of a sudden it becomes like kind of a canary in the coal mine uh, situation where uh, you can have a whole bunch of uh, plants and then scattered throughout it, you know, some of these uh, uh, indicator plants and those ones will let you know, hey, this block has a uh, higher, uh, higher uh, uh, incidence of a uh, uh, particular type of pest. So let's knock it out before it spreads. Uh, more broadly. So it is it is a combination of cameras as well as the plants themselves uh, em emitting them. So it's not just uh, it's not just a, a visual you know hyperspectrum. It's a combination of this uh, engineering, uh, you know genetic engineering combined with uh, that uh, uh, visual inspection. Oh, very neat. So it's just like indicator plants scattered throughout a field, not necessarily the whole field or. Yeah, that's that's right. I mean, there's uh, probably many different ways that this technology can can be uh, taken, but uh, um, being able to utilize them, if you think through uh, the wine uh, the wine industry, I know the second time I'm using it as an example here, but um, uh, for a long time, rose rose bushes were put at the front of uh, different rows of of grapes, and they were done uh, for the reason of being able to be indicator plants of certain types of, uh, uh, you know, uh, diseases or, or fungus or pests uh, because they would uh, react sooner than the grapes. So uh, it became indicator plants. Uh, so you could think through it in the same, in a similar way, uh, using them as uh, indicators to uh, get a, get a head up, heads up uh, before, before it attacks uh, other things. Oh, very nice. Clever. Yeah, yeah, super, super sharp. Um, and again, I, you know, we recognize that even though Sweet Farm, for instance, we grow food at a very, very small scale. Uh, in California, we ran a, uh, a small scale CSA for, uh, you know, tens of families level, uh, growing on uh, an acre and a half uh, kind of scale. Um, in, in New York, uh, we're scaling up. Uh, we do have a vineyard uh, that uh, we're, we will be uh, bringing back with our wine partner, uh, but uh, uh, we are growing food uh, at, at small scale. And we recognize that that is not going to feed the world in mass. Uh, we need to do things that that really uh, can help fundamentally move move the needle on that as well. Yeah, yeah. But you have to start somewhere, you know, if you can make it work at the small scale, you can probably scale it up. To totally. It's um, we we intent, we're very intentional about uh, our approach of getting our, our hands in the soil and soil under our fingernails, as opposed to just being, um, 
you know, uh, purely, purely on the research side or, or purely on the investment side, uh, it's incredibly important to get, uh, get that experience and respect just how difficult these challenges are. Uh, I think if you, if you, uh, if you don't have that experience, um, you, you kind of miss a lot of the nuance um, and and maybe don't necessarily know how to start asking some of the important questions. I won't say all the questions because I don't think anyone knows all the questions we need to be asking, but it at least gives us a starting place. Um, so it's it's humbling uh, as, as I think everyone uh, who listens to this podcast knows just how uh, incredibly complicated uh, these systems are. Um, my, my background is in engineering, um, specifically in nuclear engineering. So, uh, doing systems, uh, systems level design, uh, for large, uh, uh, large scale plants. Um, what I'll say is the food system is order many orders of magnitude, uh, more complicated than a nuclear reactor. Um, it's, <laughs> uh, it's incredibly, incredibly, uh, challenging, uh, to know at, at all these different scales, how they work together. So what I'll say is when it comes to emerging technologies uh, that play a role in these kind of ecosystem markets and carbon markets and, and such, especially if there's any uh, investors out there listening on the call, um, what I like to encourage folks to do is really expand the control volume on which they assess what is a climate technology, what is a, a technology that's worth investing in uh, for the sake of um, improving uh, these processes. So um, for instance, you could draw a control volume around a single plant and look at it at just the root level or the soil level around that plant. Or you could draw that control volume around a whole field. Or you could draw it around a region or you know the world. And as you increase it, what happens is uh, you get increased complexity of interactions, uh, but uh, you start to gain a, a broader perspective around how do these systems interact with one another and how can improving one uh, uh, external system uh, that it would be considered external at a smaller control volume scale, uh, as you increase that control volume, you start to see that, no, this is no longer just a pure input or pure output. Instead, um, you know, a fruit or a tomato comes off a plant, it goes into a human, the human has outputs as well. How do we tie that output back in to the system as well, right? So that's, yeah, go ahead, go ahead, DJ. I know you yeah, no, I guess um, just explain what you mean by control volume. So when you're talking yeah. about, you know, roots or plants or... Yeah, so uh, control volume is basically, um, and this is a, uh, it, it's a term that's applied to um, how do you determine how do you um, how do you draw a boundary on a system, um, right? So, uh, so you could think about a, an individual plant. If you draw a dotted line around an individual plant, um, that could be the control volume by which. Um, everything inside of it, you have interactions, uh, you have uh, uh, nutrient exchanges and uh, gas exchanges. Um, and what are some of the inputs, right? Some of the inputs across the control volume are things like sunlight and CO2 coming in and then oxygen going back out. Um, 
water coming in, right? Those, those are some examples of like inputs and outputs around a control volume of that scale. But um, at that level, you're, you may have an output that is a tomato, right? Mm -hmm. And the tomato just disappears. But what comes back in at that scale may be represented simply as NPK, right? As, as nutrients, as just a direct input. If you draw it at a larger scale, maybe a, a field scale, um, and you could do this at the smaller scale as well, maybe it's not NPK that's the input. Maybe it's a seed for cover crop, for a nitrogen fixing crop, for instance, right? So that could be uh, visualized as an input. Um, but uh, when you start expanding it, and then all of a sudden you have humans that exist inside the control volume because you're now big enough, now all of a sudden the tomato doesn't leave the control volume. Instead, it goes into this other system, which is a human, and then they have an output, and that output makes its way back into uh, back into uh, that same uh, that same plant, that same field, by going through a process like pyrolysis through you know with BioForce Tech or some other uh, similar uh, process. So. Uh, I, I mentioned that in the sit in the sense of um, kind of expanding uh, one's viewpoint on what is deemed uh, sustainable or what is deemed a worthwhile technology to pursue. Uh, I, I think it um, helps bring in different perspectives uh, around what what are some of the solutions that are needed for for addressing some of these issues around carbon, around ecosystems uh, as well. Okay, so by expanding the view a little bit, it changes what we look at as solutions? Because obviously, like carbon markets, that's a huge system. <laughs> right, yeah, I would say, I would say it, uh, it expands, um, uh, it, it expands sort of, uh, for investors, for instance, it expands the thesis by which you can, you can deploy. Um, and it's not to say it's, it's creating, uh, it's, it's not creating a, uh, um, it's not like it's trying to create reason to invest in things. It's more uh, opening up um, people's eyes to to different uh, technologies that should that really deserve a chance as part of this discussion. Um, so we we want to avoid just falling into the trappings of um, here's the super explicit, super uh, obvious things. Uh, systems are complex. Things aren't all, always obvious. And unless you're looking at things from a systems perspective, um, you're, you're just going to end up being siloed into the same things over and over again, uh, while simultaneously missing the opportunities, both from a need perspective, but also even from potentially an investment perspective um, in, in those other, uh, other areas. Okay. Okay. Yep. Well, do you have any final thoughts as we sort of wrap up? Is there anything else you want to touch on? Um, so, you know, it's, we, we kind of hit on uh, a couple of different, uh, items, obviously like the carbon itself through bioforce tech, uh, then the, uh, how do we reduce waste? How do we reduce, uh, we'll call it level of effort, uh, which has an associated carbon cost to it with something like interplant. Um, the, uh, uh, 
traceability platforms and and supply chain platforms are something that's super interesting. Uh, they're becoming more and more uh, prevalent. Um, one of the uh, there's a, a company actually out of Sweden called Skira, which is uh, just getting off the ground. That's doing uh, doing some interesting work in uh, uh, providing traceability as it applies to uh, uh, sourcing and uh, you know supply both from buyers and suppliers. Um, I think having having these kind of platforms that uh, are not just for linking suppliers and buyers, but also adding a lever, level of confidence um, in the supply chain to um, what is the carbon impact? Um, you know, how are we measuring it? Uh, if you can't measure something, you can't improve it. Uh, it's a super, uh, I think, pretty uh, pretty obvious statement, but um, uh, measurability is is very critical. I, I think that's an exciting area that's just really getting going now. Um, and I'm not I'm not saying necessarily it's it doesn't necessarily have to be on the blockchain or anything like that. I'm like I'm not going to throw out those kind of those kind of things because um, uh, I think it just starts with um, uh, creating a, a uh, honest, open traceability, uh, process. And these, these are things that have been around, but I think they're becoming more and more prevalent as companies are addressing their sustainability goals, uh, as they're not just, not just their goals, um, but in some cases, uh, they're making, um, uh, you know, outward claims on their, you know, on their packaging here is, your impact as a consumer by opting into this versus that uh, you're you're reducing by x percent your your carbon footprint um, you can only make those claims if you have the traceability to back it up uh, and if you don't uh, you're you become also exposed uh, in a number of ways so it's it's valuable for the consumer to know it's valuable for the uh, companies to achieve their goals uh, and also protect themselves uh, in the process. Uh, against uh, making uh, uh, erroneous claims, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, no one intend, no one wants to intentionally uh, do that. But uh, if you can't trace it, um, then uh, you shouldn't be uh, probably making those claims in the first place as well. So uh, I am excited about those uh, kind of things as it pertains to uh, marketplaces. And it doesn't necessarily just have to be carbon. It, it could be uh, other uh, other elements of you know different different uh, forms of um, you know, positive, uh, regenerative agriculture doesn't necessarily just have to be the carbon sequestration. Um, but just adding that layer, I, I think is, uh, super exciting, uh, for even the end consumer. Definitely. Yeah. Well, you hit on a topic we're going to cover quite a bit in terms of measurement and traceability and transparency. So I'm excited that you see that as an opportunity for growth. Absolutely. And I, again, I'm not an expert at a lot of these things, so I'm super excited uh, to, to hear from the different guests uh, that you're going to have on the podcast. Um, it's really exciting what uh, y'all are doing. I, I'm super honored and uh, thankful that y'all uh, decided to have Sweet Farm on and Snowcap on uh, as, as part of this um, and really appreciate everything that you're doing, DJ. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. It was great talking with you. Likewise, appreciate it. If you're looking for more information about these emerging technologies, check out the show notes. 
And if you're curious about carbon and ecosystem services, or you have more questions for us to answer, come visit us at decode6.org.